0: Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going? Wow. <laughs>
2: Well, Ed, I had the thing. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: mm. Donald Sutherland sort of pointed at me. No, um, I <laughs> I tested positive for COVID pretty much the week after my birthday, which was. Mm. I'm sort of looking back and trying to figure it out, though accurately tracing things are nigh on impossible now given the R eight of Omicron. Like, probably got it around my birthday, which is a bizarre. Present from the ether, but what can you do? And I'm so glad to report that I am feeling now a okay. Every so okay. often, I get a sort of coughing attack that sounds like I'm bringing up a furball, and I do tire a little easy. And sometimes, after a, a sprightly walk round the block, my chest can feel a bit sore. But compared mm. to friends of mine I know who have long COVID, who had the dire misfortune of catching earlier strains pre-vaccines, I consider myself beyond lucky. It was by no means the worst I have ever physically felt. That dubious honour belongs to norovirus about 20 mm. years ago now. Or Aw, awful. But it is the strangest thing I've ever had. But with all your other kinds of ills, typically my experience of them is thinking, oh, I think I'm getting a bit ill. And then you're really ill, like a few days, and then you can feel improvement happening and health returning to you. Whereas this was the same every day, in and out for 10 days. And it was just, you know, <laughs> bizarre really really bizarre but i am testing negative i'm out in the world once more um oh yeah really odd like quite the lesson in surrender i have to say but i sort of rewatched the zen diaries of gary shandling sort of in a slight <laughs> half awake half asleep state you know what i really recommend watching it that way It gives an extra little sort of uh, zhuzh to proceedings. Ed, tell me of you, please.
1: Uh, I'm good, yeah. I fortunately still have not caught COVID as far as I'm aware. Um, I do wonder if someday I'll be able to have a blood test and just see if they can find if I have antibodies, right? Because there have been various times over the last year where I have thought felt not great for like a day. And just wondered if oh did I have like super mild COVID or
0: mm-hmm. there
1: was a time, I think it was in like February, and where I was really I had what felt like very bad flu for a couple of days and had to miss work and just wondering if that was it. And I just looked out and you know, it just didn't impact me too much. And as it is is one of those things where I just think, maybe I have it, but maybe not, and maybe I'll never know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing to contemplate really. Like it, it does feel as if this whole, you going on two years, is just a series of dodge bullets for me, which admittedly is a lot easier when you're just in your own house for much of that time. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to being out in the world and doing things. Mm. Um, but no, I'm good. Uh, been following along a little bit with some of the news coming out of Sundance, um you know in terms of what movies people are excited about less because in my mind i'm thinking oh these are the movies everyone's going to be talking about at the end of the year more in the case of thinking these are the movies that everyone's going to be calling overrated at the end of the year <laughs> there's just that there is there is Sundance inflation it's a real problem yeah uh, where people watch watch stuff like I, I i don't mean to kind of like call out like cha-cha slide just because it's the one i think won the audience award uh, and I don't want to kind of like dismiss it or whatever out of hand, but that you know there is always that like one movie that everyone seems to rave about, that like um uh, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, that you know does really well at Sundance and then comes out and no one cares about, and a bunch of people see and they're just kind of like, what the fuck are people doing? This is a terrible movie.
0: Yeah,
2: I <laughs> um, wonder what the sort of Sundance effect of that is because I just out of curiosity googled Char Char Slide movie. And the first mm-hmm. uh, few sort of pieces from New York Post and like Vulture are saying, "Oh, heartwarming! Like everyone's going to be streaming it. Like cha cha smooth." And then the Guardian's just like run-of-the-mill Sundance crowd pleaser. And I wonder mm-hmm. whether there is something about Sundance where everyone's just cold, and they get a moment where it's like, "Oh, well, this is just nice." And mm-hmm. what the kind of sort of purpose of Sundance is now and obviously for our main topic today we're going into kind of uh, streaming it from a different angle in a different way but it, it's interesting that I look at the phrase everybody will be streaming the heartwarming hit cha-cha real smooth thinking oh that that's a positive review but I, I'm not sure whether it is
1: <laughs> yeah everyone will be using this as wallpaper in you know seven months time or whatever
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah it it does make me wonder as well, because Sundancing this year is, a, is another hybrid festival where I think there are some screenings going on in Park City, but most people, at least most of the people that I follow, are watching it through streaming stuff, and it does make me wonder if there is a divide between, if, if people are seeing things in person, um, if there is, like if that has an impact on it as well. Or maybe if everyone is just streaming it because it'd be just such a pain to try and get to Utah at this time of the year, if not all your friends are gonna be there. If maybe the experience of streaming something in isolation and not having that communal experience, because I think that is a big part of it as well. Like, you know, I've never been to Sundance, but I have worked and attended a Dockfest in Sheffield as both someone who you know, uh, worked on the box office uh, very very stressful <laughs> stretch of time uh, and have at- attended as a delegate and as a as a critic years and years ago at this point in fact I think that might have been the last time you and I saw each other in person
2: I think it was yeah at the bar in between yeah. screenings
1: and there is such and that that's a big factor getting to see people that you don't see very often I think is a big part of it and and when you think of film critics who particularly in America they're spread between LA and New York maybe it's hard for people to kind of get together much most of the time but Sundance is a great way for people to hang out between films and talk about movies and get that real sense of community and I have to assume that that being gone really must impact people's response to movies out of Sundance in a way that Doesn't occur that that wouldn't occur were this a a regular year.
2: Absolutely, and I I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're so right that the thing about Sundance is that it is a place where obviously people live, but it's not a year round industry hub. Like it becomes that for the festival, so I can imagine it being like with other sort of remote experiences, it feels even more festival-like because it's not like, oh, you go to something in New York or LA where there's the city grinding around you and other stuff is happening and Mm -hmm. stuff happens there all the time. Everyone is there for Sundance. And I think that can feel, you know, this ephemeral nature of the event kind of akin to Glastonbury where Mm it is very you know, once you're there, it's kind of a Shangri-La sort of feeling.
1: But yeah, so we'll we'll see how any of those movies turn out. Uh, I, none of the stuff that I have heard about them, and yeah, what little I've been following has, has really struck me. I am kind of interested in the fact that Lena Dunham's made another feature film.
0: Has called, she?
1: Yes, yeah, called Sharp Stick, which I think is a sort of coming of age movie that is about a young woman exploring her sexuality, which has received a divisive response from what I've seen, but the people who like it seem to really dig it. So I am at the very least curious to see what that ends up being because, obviously, she's only made one feature film previously and she's directed loads of episodes of Girls. So I'm fascinated to see what she is like as a filmmaker 11 years after Tiny Furniture.
2: Same. Same. I mean, I'm going to watch it. (laughs) can't Mm. promise you I'm going to like it, but I want to watch it.
1: So, I mean, I guess we're we're kind of already into news uh, here, but uh, more specifically, some of the stories that we want to talk about this week. I think the first one is the story out of China that really set Twitter alight and generated just tons of memes which is that Fight Club, which has previously not been available in China and not been released in China, was released, but was released with a changed ending where, at the end of the movie, where famously uh, the narrator, uh, by uh, played by Ed Norton, and, and, and Helen the Bottom Carter's character, are looking out of the windows as Project Mayhem takes effect and all of these skyscrapers explode instead of showing the skyscrapers exploding, it cuts to a title card which essentially says, thanks to Tyler's placing a phone call, the police caught uh, everyone and the whole thing was resolved. He is now in prison. Um, Which is very funny and set uh, off a lot of people on Twitter doing their own versions of it. The, The best one I saw was one of the frame right before... Something very bad happens to Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems where it just says, uh, he went to shake his hand and congratulate him on his big win, <laughs> 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 which I found very, very funny.
2: I mean, this is Poochie left back, you know, to return to his <clears> own <throat> planet level of... yeah, It's not fantastically thought through, but yeah, it's... um. I worry that we're losing something in the memification and maybe that's all that we can do in the face of kind of authoritarian controls over art like I find it blatantly yeah. very scary and there's mm. one there's one thing about having chinese money in say something for example invested in a film like looper where mm. Ryan Johnson had originally written a uh, sort of parisian sort of flashback flash forward oh no i got stuck in the loop, loop again <laughs> um, a, the, a bit abroad that ended up being moved to the republic because of um investment because that's i mean that's just a more machiavellian way to do it isn't it there's something neater it's like well of course if you have this investment and this financing it makes sense that you film there and to sort of show the culture in a way and but to actually retcon into and also it's kind of like i mean i don't know whether the book was able to be bought and read in china Mm. um but part of me feels like i don't know would, would anyone i don't know i i'm still figuring out how i feel about this but my initial response is one of like Abject fear, um, mm. particularly given, you know, Chinese tennis stars going missing, and and you know that, that that this is I don't know, it's oh sorry, I'm not being particularly eloquent, but it's just censorship and it's the most, yeah. most it's the most blatant sort of twisting propaganda, and it's not even it's just blatant, like there's no subtlety to it. Because often mm. you have to kind of, in media, you know, you, you get trained and media literate in order to sort of like sieve through and have your own response to things. But this is just like, it, it's just right there. <laughs> you know, it's real Leonardo DiCaprio leaning forward in <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood stuff. That's the only meme that I can come up with. Um, and that this has happened in other films as well. Um mm. I just, oh god! Like the irony being that Fight Club features Tyler Durden splicing hardcore porn into children's films, and yet this is the bit that's actually the most egregious sort of cut to it. Oh, I don't know, my head's spinning. <laughs>
1: mm, yeah, I think I'm in a similar position to you. I think I find it, I find it very terrifying in the abstract in the sense that any form of censorship that tastes that is this blatant is is quite terrifying to me but I also find it I find it hard not to find it very very funny in this specific instance because of the blatantness of it because and, and because it is so hamfisted and but and also it's kind of weird thinking you know like Fight Club's such an old movie at this point there it's it's nearly 23 years old you know, it's widely available in its uncut form elsewhere. I'm sure people in China could pirate the original version if they want to and if word gets out that, you know, the ending to this movie is different, I'm sure they will. You know, like, that, that sort of stuff plays in the back of my mind. Obviously, it's it's ludicrous to say, oh, this is just happening in China. It doesn't matter. You know, it's happening to two point something billion people. So, so yeah, obviously, obviously it, it matters. matters. So it's, it's ludicrous to make that argument. But at the same time it doesn't scare me as much as say if if this was happening more blatantly just in in the entire world or if there was a movie that was being heavily censored by everyone because of a revolutionary message you know and and also just like china's always been so controlling about what media gets shown there that it also kind of feels like weird progress that Fight Club would get shown there in any form. Yes. Right? Even, in, even in a butchered form that removes this key image and moment.
2: I think you're right. I think it's the absurdity of watching the entirety of Fight Club and then <laughs> getting to the end and going, oh, that's what happened. Because yeah. I guess this is an end card that is meant to change the entire meaning technically yeah no, it, it's not actually an alternative ending it's a wild and then this happened which is mm. i think really devious <laughs> and it's because i don't see why it sort of benefits them to show an american doing the right thing because <laughs> surely it just mm. plays better to be like look at all these americans you want to be like this um, yeah. I d- oh Yeah, I think...
1: Do you want Ikea's? Yeah. Because this is how you get Ikea's. <laughs> yeah, the thing it reminds me of, I uh, pretty much just because I happened to watch it recently, is, uh, I w- is the ending of the fourth original Planets of the Apes movie, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, where the whole movie is about the cruelty of mankind leading up to the point where the apes rebel and it's building up to what is clearly meant to be a bloody climax, and then suddenly Caesar very awkwardly just says, and now we will go and live in peace, and, <laughs> and not bother men. And then, then reading up about, about it, being like, oh right, that was mandated by the studio, because the original ending did have them beating everyone to death, definitely and they thought would. it was too dark. Um, it does have that same weird dissonance to it, where you just watch it. and this doesn't really fit with everything that happened in the preceding hour and 40 something minutes
2: yeah yeah
1: our next story is one that's kind of a follow-up to something we talked about a few months ago when this first bubbled up uh is the story that most of the editorial staff of the onion av club are going to be quitting in the near future if they haven't already because the company that owns them geomedia or jo media as i like to think of them a Horrible collection of ghouls who have or now ruined two great publications. The the other being Deadspin, which they turned into a zombified and totally irrelevant version of itself. They told the staff of the AV Club a few months ago at this point that they were going to be moving their offices from Chicago, where the AV Club had been based for um the last twenty something years. I think originally they were based in Wisconsin. Uh, where The Onion itself originated and then moved to Chicago in the the 90s sometime, and they said to the staff, the the seven key members of the editorial staff of The Onion AV Club that they could go to, uh, they could uh, move to LA but without any significant rise in pay to account for the fact that LA is much more expensive a place to live than Chicago. Or, they could lose their jobs. You know, they could take a buyout. And whilst this offer was being considered by the people who it were being affected by, they also advertised numerous jobs online, basically saying, you know, film club, uh, film editor, AV club, and things like that of that nature, which, understandably, rubbed the members of the AV club the wrong way because they they hadn't made a decision either way, and already their jobs were being offered up. So. Uh, about a week and a half ago at this point, I think at the time we're recording, they all announced that they were all going to take the buyout and that they would all be quitting and they're all going to be leaving in March. So it's... uh, And I want to talk about this because obviously it's shitty in so many ways that the AV Club have been treated like this and these individuals have been treated like this. But also in a broader sense, it's just a real sad end for a publication that I read religiously sort Of 10, 10 or 11 years ago, that I think has done so much to shape the way in which culture writing is done through some of the people who worked there. I think we talk about her work all the time, but Emily Vanderwerth, obviously, her work as the TV editor there for years and years, I think really shaped the way in which episodic TV is written about now. And people like Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps, who left to form The Dissolve, which itself is now sorely missed, but it's so many great writers went through there and who have since gone on to do great work elsewhere, and the site, I think, had a real cosmopolitan and all expansive view of culture writing that I really relate to. It's the sort of thing where you could read about, you know, you could read a review of the latest Kanye album, And then you could also read a real deep dive on Satan Tango. (laughs) Like there was such a breadth of what it would write about and it would tackle high and low and obscure and mainstream so well. And it wrote about it in such an entertaining way that made you want to see these things and listen to these things because the people who were writing about it were so passionate that to see it gutted in this way, in this such cold, corporate, underhanded way, and... Presumably it will, it will continue on as a site and as a name, but without the people and without the place that has defined it, it's just such a fucking bummer.
2: A cousin Greg and Tom behind this. it <laughs> really feels like something they would pull. Because it's mm. not just <sighs> terrible business sense, it's everything else on top of it as well. and. It really tests my desperately trying to find nuance in things position when they behave so moustache twirlingly evil.
0: Like it's real Mm -hmm.
2: maniacal laugh series of (laughs) events. And I too absolutely adored the AV Club. And what it did was I think Embrace the subjectivity of media reviewing and use that as a strength. And that's how it built up the brand. Like the idea of the AV club is, of course, we're all nerds here Mm. (laughs) because that was the kind of cultural cachet or like the kind of slang, you know. And what I learned from American films was that if you were in the AV department, you were a massive nerd, but it was worn as a badge of honor. Mm. And I get slightly misty-eyed at your description of like how it would just embrace anything that you could watch or hear and it said culture is important and yeah, particularly Emily Vanderbilt's work on episodic TV and really kind of taking the bat on that the golden age of TV was handing out and being like, oh yeah, this is worth critique and study mm. and the fact that it wasn't about this kind of great distance it was about tv is in our homes and it's in our heads and that intimacy of it feeling as if it's speaking directly to me and I'm figuring out what it's saying and even Emily Vanderbilt sort of looking back retrospectively and at uh, kind of the work that she did on girls pre-transition and and being like, oh, I sort of understand that now. But it's wonderful that she had a space where she was able to bat for it so completely.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. A- and, you know, the thing that I went to the AV club for was that I never felt that it was swayed by sophistry or PR or publicists. Like, you could go and feel like you were listening to... Your friends at brunch, like you say, that passion was evident. And the thing that is so sad about the AV club in particular, and like you said, you know, oh, that's been, is that these brands are built up, and what old school capitalism doesn't understand about online is that you a brand doesn't exist online in the same way that it does in meat space.
0: You know, you
2: you can't do turnover in the same way because. That subjectivity that the AV club built upon was built by subjective people. And if there is not a respect of, you know, the natural, you know, um, turnover that happens where people leave or move on or whatever. But to force it out and think that they could make the AV club anything without the people who made it. No, absolutely get to fuck. And I think it's only going to come back and bite them because... You and I being people who started reading the AV club in sort of a different phase slash era of the internet when we were both still in the UK, we know too much.
0: Mm. <laughs> we're
2: through the looking glass, people. Like, I'm not going to read the AV club now. Fuck them. Yeah. And I don't think I'm the only person who is going to think that.
1: Mm. I think you saw that as well from some of the people who have been covered by the A V Club as well. The the one that leaves to mind was Scott Ackerman was one of the first people to say, This is terrible. I've read the A V Club for years, I've been covered by them. I will now not do anything with the A V Club again. And obviously, in terms of the broad spectrum of pop culture, Scott Ackerman is is not the most famous person in the world. But he is influential in alternative comedy and in the kind among the kind of people who read the av club so him saying that and people like paula Tompkins and, and people of like that who are who have a big influence on that space i think will have an impact and make people not read it maybe it won't go quite the way that deadspin went because deadspin really is at this point just this complete utter shell that no one cares about uh, and I think AV Club has a bigger footprint in general, but it, it I can't imagine it will have the same sort of passion that it did back in sort of the early 2010s when I think it was really at its peak or even sort of in the last few years where after you know all those people left to form the Dissolve and various other people left over the years, it still felt like some version of itself you know, maybe not the version that you fell in love with or not the version that you preferred, but it still felt very much like the AV Club. And I can't imagine that these people leaving in this way and the offices moving to LA and it losing that, I think, crucial distance of of not being in LA.
2: Oh, yeah. Just kind of what we were talking about there in terms of Sundance, you know, Mm. and and that it was separate and part of the wider American cultural scene than just the two cities, (laughs) East Coast and West Coast. Mm. It was like, oh no, the second city, that also is there and important. And yeah. Oh, fucking blows. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, yep, yep.
1: (laughs) So we'll go on to our topic for this week, which is curation in the age of streaming. This... It's a topic that I've been thinking of for a while, but what really catalyzed me to want to talk about it was I was, as as I'm sure everyone is, scrolling through a, a streaming service trying to think of what to watch, specifically HBO Max. And I started thinking about how HBO Max has a really odd approach to how it lays out the stuff that it has available the content the the films and television programs that it has available because warner brothers own so many different libraries of different kinds of stuff that they all shove onto hbo max that when they come up with their categories to try and get people to watch certain things or you know to watch something on the service they tend to draw from these very disparate bases and you get categories that I find really fascinating in how strange they are. The the example that made me think about this was they had a category under the films section that was called Memory. So it was movies that are about memories. And the first one listed was uh, Reminiscence, a movie that they recently had debut on the platform starring Hugh Jackman, which is you know a sci-fi thing. Okay, I can understand why that's there. It's about memory. It's uh original that they have so obviously they want to put it for at the forefront. Then it also had The Hangover, because obviously, big movie about people forgetting memory kind of ties in there. It's maybe not as uh, profound in its exploration of the concept of memory, Um, but, you know, it still kind of fits. And then the next was like the Three Colours Trilogy, (laughs) and I was thinking how amazing it is that that's what they lumped together, and thinking about how... You know, not a lot of people are going to make the leap from thinking, I'll watch The Hangover, and then thinking, okay, I'll watch Blue. But some people might, and some people might be exposed to stuff that they wouldn't have otherwise seen because it's thrown together in this sort of haphazard way. Uh, and the, the other example I had was just looking at the service today to see what they were having. They had available, they had one called Women Front and Center. So it's movies about women, about female characters. And... I, th- I thought the, the mix they had on there was quite fun, which was uh, The Iron Lady, so, uh, you know, prestige Oscar winner about Margaret Thatcher. The two Lady Snowblood movies, which are the most key influences on Kill Bill, very violent uh, action movies from Japan from the 70s. Waiting to Exhale, kind of classic uh, movie about uh, black womanhood in the, the mid 90s. A Woman Under the Influence, uh,
0: <laughs>
1: Belle de Jour, uh, promising young woman basic instinct uh, and baby boom <laughs> so like a very very disparate selection of movies and it got me thinking about how i feel that approach to putting out your wares of just taking a bunch of different disparate stuff that's in you know, a bunch of different genres and throwing up there is preferable to i think what a lot of services do kind of following the netflix model which is you know you just kind of like throw a bunch of stuff up there and let the algorithm sort it out and that's really what i wanted to discuss today it was the the, the notion of how these services curate their offerings because as more people are watching things through streaming services as we all have been over the last two years as going to see movies in theaters has been uh, a more tenuous proposition for a lot of people the power that these services have in actually allowing people to discover new things, I think, grows exponentially.
2: As someone who has developed an interest and a passion for UX, i.e. user experience design, I find this stuff endlessly fascinating. Because when you have a huge pile of stuff, even like real-life stuff, There are so many different ways you can organise it. Now, I wonder sometimes whether UX and ease of finding things is sacrificed to try and push how much stuff is actually there. So yes, Mm. I am talking directly to Amazon Prime and Mm -hmm. Disney Plus, which are two of the most subscribed to services and just juggernauts in terms of the amount of content that they have and that on disney plus i can watch margaret or margaret sorry i always (laughs) get the pronunciation wrong and then also the princess diaries you know it's just like Oh, and The Deep End with Tilda Swinton that I really, like, mm-hmm. like even in sort of love film post-out days, like, took a while for me to get. And I was like, how can I have this and 101 Dalmatians on my watch list? This doesn't feel <laughs> right. Um, and then I think other services, like Mubi, I think, is incredibly elegant has and has lots of different ways in a kind of kaleidoscopic, Way. so you can mm. click it in several different ways and I think everything is archived because obviously movie's selling point is curation so yeah. they are not saying we curate it in one way, they say we pick a film every day and it's movie film of the day but actually you can look at everything in so many different lenses because we've indexed everything so well
0: um, yeah,
2: and I remember when Netflix propositioned me have many years ago, saying, "Emily, do you like raunchy films?" And just how Netflix is trying to sort of go by mood. But now, as the algorithm marches on, it's more about. I remember when the top ten was introduced. Like mm. this, this is what's in the top ten of what's being watched in the UK right now, and I was like, "That's interesting because why are they? You know." that's also a badge of like people are making it so finding it so difficult to make decisions on Netflix that they will just go, okay, what's everyone else watching, which surely Hmm. defies the point of streaming and being able to make (laughs) your own specific choices individual to you. And when you told me about this HBO Max thing, I thought that is bloody fascinating because what it reminded me of is one of the most terrifying and brilliant books I've ever read by one of the people I admire most on the planet today, James Bridle's The New Dark Age, they describe how Amazon warehouses are arranged. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now, they are not arranged in the way that we navigate through the Amazon website. They are arranged in a machine learning understanding way because the way that things are arranged in Amazon warehouses Group things in how likely they are to be bought together. They are not. Right. They are not indexed in a Dewey decimal system way. They are not indexed by genre or uh, object. Even it's literally what things are most likely to go together. Mm. And I thought this feels again to me like a machine learning way of presenting oodles of content in a way that strikes humans as novel Mm. because if you just search for example with content it's generally by genre right that's kind of the genus that we tend to go by and then you can get more granular in terms of oh i want to see this director or i only want films from like this period but i'd say that like overall people are looking for like Genre or broadly sort of franchise, it's not even Marvel, but like superhero or independent, you know? Mm. And this is like, it seems to me like a more thematic approach. So instead yeah. of searching, for example, you know, it, it almost feels to me like there are humans who are marking this content in terms of not necessarily what year it was made or whether it's a comedy, but finding tags and searchable tag words. For example, memory. So mm-hmm. then you have a cluster of films that we would never put together in any other way. But when you go, oh, well, yeah, actually, a theme is memory. <laughs> but I don't think I've ever in my life Ed, gone, I really want to watch a film about memory right now. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm a bit stumped.
1: Yeah, I think it's also... I mean, it's it's kind of tied to what you and I do with this show in that, you know... I mean, this happened more when there were more wide releases and like stuff was being put out more, you know, where you think, okay, what's kind of a news... What's a new movie that's coming out? And, you know, what's, it, what's interesting about it that we could then use as, as a jumping-off point? I kind of feel like that's something of what's happening with the HBO Max model, where it's, you know, Reminiscence is a movie about memory. We want to put together a category that relates to it so we can put it at the front of it. So what, you know, what's everything else that's related to memory that we have? And so I think that, that is kind of where that model is coming from. Because some of their other ones are very just kind of like, you know, here's a list of comedy movies or whatever. But I think, I think that's, or at least, you know, obviously from the outside not having any insight into how their thing works, it feels like they are trying to think of interesting ways of putting their original stuff up front, but then because they have such a huge variety of stuff the stuff that ends up being carried in its wake tends to be really esoteric in a way that weirdly to me feels, you know, like if you go to a small video store and, and you know, you have your staff picks whatever, where or you know, they'll have a, a section that clearly one of the clerks has put together themselves where they just kind of throw a bunch of movies together that they like and try and think of some reason why they're there, but replicated presumably through whatever you like you say, whatever kind of like algorithmic or machine learning or just purely going through and looking letterboxed or imdb like for what tags have been applied to these movies.
2: Here's a question Ed, can you, do you ever sort of look at streaming services and think I wish things were organized this way? Is, the, is there a kind of a, a path through that you find most helpful?
1: Yeah I think the specific one for me just because it is a descendant of a service that I thought was a little bit better on this run is the Criterion channel because I yeah you know, I, I subscribed to this Criterion channel as soon as it was founded because I had been a big fan of Filmstruck the yes. service that TCM and the Criterion channel did before the Criterion channel, which I thought was really good at having a, a wide variety of content and and it had the same level of clearly very handcrafted duration that drives the Criterion Channel, where Criterion Channel has, you know, it will have a collection which will be 25 movies starring Cary Grant, or movies about the civil rights movement, and it's clear that this has been put together by people who know what the Criterion Collection has, and they are knowledgeable about these movies, and they want to put them all together, and they want to present them in a really good package. But what Filmstruck had, which... Criterion's channel doesn't have was it had really good UI for being able to search for things by director, country, and decade. The, so when I would go on Filmstruck, and particularly on the app, I would think, okay, what Japanese movies do they have from the 60s, because I love Japanese cinema particularly of that period and just go through and add everything really quickly because it would come up with a list of you know 200 movies and you'd be able to scroll through and you know add every kurosawa add every ozu every mizoguchi movie and it's all there and i found that way of doing it so effortless and so effective whereas now what the criterion channel has is a very basic search option where you just type in actor or director and then it will throw up stuff that they have on there but it's not as good in terms of filtering it's not if there isn't the option to search by country which i think a country for me is is i think one of the best ways to discover stuff and this is something that i do on letterboxd a lot as well on letterboxd you can you know, they have like in your stats, they have the the world map and you can click on a country and then you can filter by most popular. So you can see what are the most popular country, yeah, what are the most popular films that were made in Hong Kong? And then you can see, you know, there's an option to fade the ones that you've seen. So you can go through, okay, so I've seen Police Story. I haven't seen Police Story 2. I should watch that. And I find that as, as someone who likes to think of himself as having fairly broad and open-minded approach to cinema who wants to watch movies from as many different places and as many different perspectives as possible that to me feels like a great and fulfilling way to be able to find stuff to be able to do it by country in addition to director um director decade uh, whatever uh, genre the more standard stuff i think being able to look at stuff by country is also is, is really fascinating and also it's it's really strange when you click on like china and the top results are pretty much all American movies because of the way that uh, international co-financing works. But I think that for me is one of the things that's missing from a lot of these streaming services. I, I would say probably by design is that level of granularity. I think they're not interested really in making it easy for you to see all the stuff that they have. They're more interested in just funneling you through to certain things uh i think i think also it's really weird that criterion Channel doesn't really have an option to just look at everything they have Mm -hmm. like some and netflix i don't think does this i I mean netflix is too big netflix at this point it'd be it'd be insane if you were to just try and scroll through everything that they have but that's something that i also find really you know just helpful if you can just go to hbo max at least has this like hbo max if you go to their movie section. You can just do A to Z. Here's every single movie that we have. And that as well, I think, even if you're not going to watch something, if you just want to add something to a list, that to me feels like a real basic functionality thing that also doubles as a sense of value because you can see, oh, wow, I get all of these things. Clearly this service is worth having because I can see all the things that I get. Whereas I feel like particularly in the last sort of seven or eight years or so, as Netflix have really shifted to being all about their originals, that basic element of it has become increasingly more obtuse. Like they're not interested in you being able to see everything they have and to discover whatever small, obscure movies they have. They just want you to see their originals and maybe see whatever their algorithm has thrown up that they think you'll like.
2: Yeah, if you're someone who's into hidden gems, they will. Push that at you, but mm-hmm. that's also a very specific category in itself, and it's not to say that there is a different hidden gem that doesn't have the same qualities of the category that they've decided to title hidden gems <laughs> because they share the characteristics that a certain viewer would, a certain viewer ship, rather I should say, um, as hidden gems. I've said hidden gems too many times. It, it's lost its <laughs> meaning. Um, but it's very much the YouTube style of let's funnel you into whatever keeps you engaged mm. and we'll link it to more and more similar stuff because we don't believe you can have a broad enough taste because machine, yeah. machine learning hasn't got to the point of saying like, I mean, to pick a random example, someone who adores, oh, I don't know, phantom thread and pop star never stop never stopping in equal mm-hmm. measure for different reasons
1: mm-hmm. a fictional person that couldn't
2: possibly exist a Fictional, person, yeah. i mean <coughs> who is this who <laughs> is she good for her that you know i like to think in my very human brain that i am so special that machine learning wouldn't be able to connect the dots and understand mm-hmm. that in terms of my taste but it kind of depends on the mood I'm in because, as I've said before, I've really got into the groove of 80s and 90s silly thrillers as comfort watching.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
2: that's a point where I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just in the mood for that. I kind of want a copy of this that's a bit different. But that's not the only media I consume. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: And oh, when you're talking about like how it's hard to find stuff, the worst offender in my book, God, this is cathartic, is now TV. And mm-hmm. uh, second succession reference of the episode. I cackled when, in um, the most recent season of Succession, Roman is sent to court Scarsguards, Scandi, crypto media guy, and there is, and he pisses on the streaming service. And I thought, well, this is a film that's, uh, sorry, this is a series that is, like, not particularly thinly veiled based on Murdoch et al. Now TV is owned by Sky. Is this? I was like, am I watching a wildly meta moment of the succession writers being aware of how terrible now TV is as a player? Anyway, it's so important, like... The amount of stuff that's on Now TV that is absolutely amazing, and yet it's been indexed so poorly, and the user experience is so terrible that I keep thinking, oh, I should cancel it. And then randomly I manage to find through a search for something else, oh, that's on there. Fuck, okay, I'll hang on to this then. Because it's a weird mishmash of Sky and some HBO content. And I think it was kind of rushed together in a sort of, oh, it's sort of a sky package, but not because we need to address how poorly people um, respond to our predatory subscription practices. So we have to kind of do a, a, oh God, yeah. It's just, I really am only on Now TV to access certain content. Like I hate the entire experience. (laughs) otherwise um so it's really it's a real labor of love um you know we all have our crosses to bear i but coming back to what you were saying about going by country i think that's really beautiful and again going by country instead of just the the kind of default a majority being your country of where you are and where you're viewing from which is really only a uk and american experience right like the rest of the world has our content but like dubbed and Mm. that's still that's still huge and that's you know that output doesn't um come anywhere near to output of say even australia as an english-speaking country but their industry just isn't isn't on the same level of like sheer scale um And I think there is something still horribly imperial about the idea of foreign or world cinema. (laughs) Mm. And actually just being able to be like UK, America, France, Germany, you know, I think is actually quite lovely. And being like, kind of doing what you... It's a small sort of swipe, but very much on the front line of, let's try and give everyone as equal a chance to see for these films to be presented as equal in some way, rather than, like, here's just the sheer amount of content that features white American people speaking English, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that you wouldn't have seen this because, you know, on social media, rightly. Um, <laughs> but there was a tweet doing the rounds the other day where someone said that they hate when people dismiss world cinema as being pretentious
2: mm. when mm-hmm.
1: because you're essentially dismissing an entire culture by saying that you know everything that comes out of France is you know hoity toity art or whatever when there's just loads of broad silly dumb comedies that the french make and you know some people people always kind of go after um seven samurai for some reason when they want to talk about examples of, like, film broy movies that are all about, you know, that are all about high art or whatever. It's like, that's, like, an action movie that's got jokes and things in it. It's, yeah. like, such an unpretentious movie. The only thing that you could argue that it's pretentious about is it's Japanese and it's long. Yeah. But, like, that's that's such a narrow, like you say, imperialist view of it, just to think that because something's from another country, that it's impenetrable and it's something that you couldn't possibly understand unless you were someone who was you know had a really high opinion of yourself
2: yeah and that also people from other countries look down on us and they're incredibly wrong for doing that whereas mm. when, i i doubt they're thinking about the uk too much and, and trying to think of it as little as possible but also yeah that kind of inferiority superiority deep xenophobia tipping into racism often and like it's funny that you mentioned france because I think the French New Wave is so recognisable and often comes to mind when people think of a pretentious art film, even Mm. without saying that's a French New Wave film, you know, black and white, lots of kind of contemplation, um, not necessarily a kind of surface level narrative. Whereas, you know, one of the richest and most successful uh, filmmakers in France today is Danny Boone and mm-hmm. I I really enjoy his films like Beyond Venezuela Welcome to the Sticks is lovely. But it is like Mr. Bean levels and like Yeah. Um sometimes it's sort of like, yeah, Jacques Tati was good, but like it you know, Jacques is amazing, but we don't necessarily have to intellectualize everything. We can just go, this is sheer fucking joy. And I think that mm. was what struck people so much about Parasite was like The humor that ran through it. And it's like, yeah, you know, humans are capable of humor wherever they come from, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah, I think it is, it's just such a humanizing thing where you watch movies from other countries and realize they have the same fears as you, the same loves as you, that they experience things, they find the same things funny that you do, maybe in different ways, but like there's such commonality. Uh, that yeah, that that sense of like not wanting to know more about the world, I find to be uh, such a, a tragic thing in people. And I get, I guess that's kind of one of the things that about the way in which curation is handled. Trying vaguely to get it back to the topic. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the way that curation is is handled now, and particularly when you look at something like Netflix or whatever, is that it really does feel as if it's just constantly narrowing the field for people of just being like, this is sort of like the thing you've liked before. Here's another thing like it. And then you watch that and then it goes, here's another thing that's sort of like it. And then you just kind of keep putting putting people into narrower and narrower boxes. And that's also why, even though I didn't watch it, um, the success of Squid Game last year, I thought was so lovely. Yeah, that so many people from around the world really engaged with this thing from from Korea, uh, and Parasite as well, obviously kind of factors into that. But I think Squid Game was you know considerably bigger because of the reach that Netflix has, and I really hope that it exposed a lot of people to Korean, uh, you know, Korean dramas and and things like that, and made more people seek more of that stuff out because I really feel like that should be. That it should be in the interest of these streaming services to try and get people to watch more of their stuff and a broader range of their stuff because then, you know, they might stumble across the next squid game when people discover something on there that's, you know, different and not just the thing that they're constantly being pushed towards. Uh and this is obviously not even getting into the whole YouTube algorithm thing of you know, yeah slowly, slowly radicalizing people and boiling their brains. But that it, it kind of works on the same the same idea, the same theory, you know. It's just that it, it points you to watching more Meg Ryan movies <laughs> or whatever, not yeah. uh raiding the capital
2: Comrade Ryan. Like it, it's it's the same force of code and it's the same principle that the mm. algorithm is programmed along. And I've recently finished a book called The Hype Machine by um, Sinan Amal. Sorry, Sinan, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, I'm getting it wrong. And it's a really powerful book and incredibly well-researched about, you know, why social media is powerful and, it's, mm. and in its design and that there are certain design choices that have been made that have swayed it in this way. And it's the same with streaming services. And I completely agree with you because, to me, I think a varied media diet is the most healthy and Mm. to stretch that analogy further it's like saying oh you like burritos well then only have burritos maybe that's a bad example because burritos are amazing but you get the gist like yeah you know some days i want a big like fucking dripping burger of a film and other days i want a delicate sushi stack of a series you know Mm. and and there are no one is not better than the other like i guess what the conclusion i'm coming to ed is that i basically with streaming services and user experience design and algorithms i am becoming the gordon ramsay finally some good fucking food
1: (laughs) So we'll end this episode, we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week?
2: Well, this might even be an SRS first, Ed, in that I'm not only recommending, but I'm kind of insisting that everyone mm. watch uh, Line Goes Up by Dan Olsen. If any of this kind of tech chat and algorithm stuff um, is the kind of stuff that uh, floats your boat, then but I also just think it's essential viewing because Dan Olsen of Folding Ideas is one of the people that keeps me on YouTube.
0: Mm, yeah. <laughs>
2: because I can't see where else he would be able to talk about the things that he does in with such precision, so well-researched, and yet exquisitely accessible. And Line Goes Up is his latest masterpiece where... He goes in-depth, and I mean in-depth, about NFTs. What are Mm. they? Where do they come from? Kind of what's the point? And it is caustic, and I love him for it because, you know, (laughs) he's done his research and in such a way that I think I finally understand not only cryptocurrency, but the financial crash of 2008. Um, So thanks for that, Dan. And what is heartening is that I think even within a couple of days, a two-plus-hour sort of dive on YouTube is racking views in the millions. Because the mm-hmm. amount of work he's clearly put into it, like, it's beautifully edited, as his things always are. And it is absolutely gripping. Because it is, what, about two hours, 20 minutes, I think? And it feels yeah. like a hot minute. Like, there there is no... There is n- nothing loose about it. It is tight. And I've actually watched it twice <laughs> because it, it it bears watching again. And I think it should almost be like mandatory internet viewing because I mean, it would be, I, I would be interested in seeing someone coming back to it, but I don't really see how you can. Like it's a big mic drop on NFTs and I adore him for it. So that is Line Goes Up on YouTube by Dan Olson of Folding Ideas.
1: Yeah, I'll second that. I've also watched it twice (laughs) uh, because, you know, it's it's fast and tight, but it's also very dense. And Mm. I feel it's the sort of thing that you really need to unpack over the course of multiple viewings to really take everything in. But it's still wildly entertaining to see that because the absurdity of NFTs, again, to get back to something that's both terrifying and absurd at the same time, does make it very, very funny. And it is such an entertaining thing, and it's been so good seeing it, like you say, rack up so many views. I think it's his second most popular video ever now, and it's only been out for eight days. So, the video is going to the moon! <laughs> I am going to recommend, recommend a movie I watched uh, uh, a week ago at this point, uh, called Wolf Children, directed by Mamoru Hasada, who is an anime director whose work I have been kind of catching up on this year. I'd only previously seen his movie uh, Mirai, which was one of my favourite films from 2018, but I'd not seen the rest of his movies. So I sat down and watched all of his other kind of major works, and Wolf Children was my favourite. It's a story of a young woman who meets and falls in love with a man who can change into a wolf they get married they have two kids he dies suddenly and so she is left trying to raise these two children who can turn into wolves at will and i think it's a very beautiful movie that is really about trying to take the experience of being a parent which is an incredibly common experience it's an experience that many many people go through but which is also but is also unique to everyone who goes through it so it is about trying to take that common experience and make it feel distinctive by adding in the sudden things all oh, these children can turn into wolves every so often i think it's really gorgeous in how it does that and how it looks as well it's beautifully animated as all of his movies are but what really struck me struck me was the relationships how keenly drawn they are and how affecting they are the the thing it explores about the difficulty of being a single parent, which a lot of it is about, it's about a woman being very tired because her children won't leave her alone. And I thought it was so exciting to see that visualised and to also see it be in this sort of very sort of ground level fantasy way, um, where you have this one fantastical element in what is otherwise just a normal story of people trying to survive and to kind of make it day by day and i thought it was just an absolutely incredible movie easily one of the best films that i've seen this year i mean it came out in 2012 but you know it's a uh, certainly of the older movies i've watched this year one of the best so that is wolf children uh check it out it's, it's really lovely if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher FM all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
2: And it's goodbye from me.